Let's turn to our Bibles, please. Mark chapter 2. This message is called The Scandal of Grace. The Scandal of Grace. You know, last week we looked together at the start of Mark chapter 2 and we saw Jesus healing the paralytic. And just as Andrew just did a wonderful job in worship, helping us see and reminding ourselves, it's an incredible story. A story where Jesus not only heals a guy who's been paralyzed, but more than that, he heals him of his sin. He forgives him. He, he, in doing so, reveals that he's got the divine authority not only to forgive people of their, or heal people of their sickness, but to forgive them of their sin. He is proving once and for all, yet again, that he really is God. He has grand and great authority. Well, this then is the story that happens next. It is most likely the next day or the day after. It is in close proximity to verses 1 through 12, and in verse 13, we read then as follows. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord, as we review this story today, this picture of scandalous grace, Lord, would you help us not only to see you, and would you help us to not only see Levi, would you help us to see our own lives in the story as well? Lord, would we be humbled afresh today, not only by the scandal of grace that we see in you, would we be humbled and effectively affected today as we realize we're in the picture? We have been a recipient of your scandalous grace. Help open our eyes, Lord. Amen. You know, one of my historical heroes for many years now has been a man by the name of Winston Churchill. Now, I think everybody in the world, as far as I'm aware, seems to have heard of Winston Churchill. And I still remember hearing about Winston Churchill for the first time. I was in GCSE history, about 14 years old, at school, and they started telling me about this guy called Winston Churchill. And I remember seeing the picture of this really big guy with a big smile on his face, big cigar hanging out of his mouth, and the old V for victory sign, and just thinking, this guy looks really quite cool. And I remember just being really intrigued by this man. He was involved in World War I. He was the Lord of the Admiralty. He was involved in, in leading the Navy, in effect. And he was very involved in World War I. And as soon as World War, World War I finished, he was one of the voices really in the wilderness declaring that he didn't feel that Hitler had finished and that the Nazis had finished. And other people thought, no, it's over. The World War is over. But he was one of the few voices saying, I don't believe it's over. We need to prepare. We still need to be prepared to fight again. Well, when World War II arrived and Winston Churchill proved that he was right, the British very quickly made him Prime Minister. And he went on to become, I think, unarguably one of the most universally acclaimed wartime leaders of all time. His leadership in 1940 through to 1945 really not only saved the United Kingdom, but had a significant impact around the world. And researching this, he became very quickly one of my historical heroes. Paul Johnson, in his biography of Churchill, says of all the towering figures of the 20th century, Winston Churchill was one of the most valuable to humanity and also the most likable. I'd agree with both of those comments. He's a great leader. He, he had a significant impact on the 20th century, but he was also one of the most 
likable. There was something about Winston Churchill that you'd want to be around. And the more you study his life, the more you realize this guy was crazy. And you really want to be with him. He was a very intriguing man. A friend once said of Churchill, he is a man of simple tastes. He is quite simply satisfied with the best of everything. And you think, yeah, that's my type of guy. He sounds like a fun guy. He's, he's not moaning about lots of things. He just wants the best of everything. To be around Churchill was to be around a man who loved life, who loved to lead his nation and loved life itself. And so I wasn't surprised when I was informed of the following quote by Sita Stelzer in a book that she's written called Dinner with Churchill. Now, one would assume, why would anybody write a book about having dinner with somebody? I mean, how would it last longer than like a pamphlet-sized book? And yet this is actually quite a thick book. And it's a thick book about dinner with Churchill. And it's a book all about the way Churchill would entertain folk over dinner parties and so, so on and so forth and use them strategically for the advantage of his own country. This is what she writes in the entrance to the book. She says, Churchill would turn mealtimes into many things. He would change them into information exchange seminars, international summits, intelligence gathering operations, gossip fests, speech practice sessions, and listen, and even semi-theatrical performances. You'd want to be there having dinner with Churchill. To be around Churchill would be a thrill and to have dinner with him and then experience one of these speech practice sessions or semi-theatrical performances must have been a thrilling moment to be present. Well, imagine then, instead, not having dinner with Churchill, but having dinner with one Jesus of Nazareth. One who has been seen to be already in the Gospel of Mark, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who rebukes demons and demons flee from his very presence. The one who heals the sick, who can send it to a paralyzed man, rise, get up and walk out. A man who in his grace has the power and authority to forgive sins. The one who says and claims that he is God and that he has come to usher in the kingdom of God. He's making a way, making a bridge to God Almighty himself through and in his life. The one who knitted you together in your mother's womb, who knows how you think, knows your frame, knows how you are made. Imagine the thrill of having dinner with him. Well, that is exactly the scene that we have here in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. This could appropriately be called dinner with Jesus. See, dinner with Churchill would have no doubt been fascinating. I would have loved it. I would have loved just to have spent time with him and sought to learn from him as a leader. And yet dinner with Jesus wouldn't have just been fascinating. It would have been a dinner of eternal worth. And that's exactly what we have here. A dinner that is of eternal worth. It's a dinner through which the Savior ever increasingly displays his gracious initiative towards sinners. A dinner through which and through the events leading up to it and then during it, he, he displays very clearly the way he's going to operate with sinful mankind. And more than that, he's going to reveal and pull back the curtain even more on his gracious mission. The scandalous grace with which he is going to operate as he walks the earth and what indeed he has come to do. This dinner is not just fascinating. It has eternal worth attached to it. There's two points this morning. Number one, grace displayed. I want us to walk through this dinner with Jesus. I want our souls to be freshly affected by what we're seeing here in his life. And then number two, grace applied. I want us to see ourselves in the picture appropriately. And I want us to realize what this dinner means for us. Because it does mean things for us. It has knock-on effects for us today, for each and every one of us in the room. So number one, let's begin where Mark begins, grace displayed. See, this dinner is fueled and indeed sourced by a stunningly unlikely call and life conversion. A stunningly unlikely call and life conversion of a man that people would have been totally shocked about. No one would have anticipated what was coming up. And yet, right at the beginning of this day, 
this day started pretty much for Jesus like many other days in his life. So let's examine the scene. Verse 13. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. This day for Jesus started like most other days in his ministry. He was out again by himself. He was most likely praying to the Father. He was pulling away as the day began to spend time with his Lord, with his King, with his Father, the one he loves more than anybody, to be freshly focused into his mission, freshly enthused about what God the Father had called him to do. And so that's where he begins, out and about beside the sea. And this day continues for Jesus, just like most other days in his ministry. Very quickly by now, the crowds are around him. Jesus is always going to struggle from here on in to get to a desolate place because the crowds are usually waiting for him at the door. And so they just start to follow him around. And so what does Jesus do? Well, as he gets to the sea, he turns to them in grace and he begins to teach them. We've already discovered in Mark chapter 1 that that's what Jesus had come to do. He makes it very clear that he's come to preach the good news. He's come to die in their place and he's come to tell them about it first. That the kingdom of God is near and that they need to repent and put their faith in him as their Lord and Saviour. This is the fifth time in just two two chapters where we see Jesus teaching. We're going to see it time and time again. He's not primarily come to heal. He's not primarily come to rebuke demons. He's come to teach. He's come to preach the good news. So this day begins like most other days. Jesus is out by himself, crowds draw near. He begins to teach them and preach to them about the good news. And yet what happens next, no one would have seen coming. What occurs now was a complete shock, a stunning shock for everybody present. Read with me verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. You know, to modern day readers, i.e., me and you, this does not appear very stunningly unexpected, does it? I mean, it seems all right, and it's good news. It's like, yeah, happy days. But it appears to read like, you know, so, okay, so Jesus you know, got up, he's preaching to crowds, and then there was a man from the ATO over on the corner, and he said, follow him, and this guy rose and followed him, and he became a Christian. That's awesome, great. Anybody else, any other professions? You know, that's all it seems to read like, and you think, this is really quite nice. But to the original reader, this wasn't just quite nice. To the original reader, this was off the charts stunning. You see, Levi, the tax collector, would have been without doubt the most unlikely individual in all of Capernaum to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Levi would have been by far away the most unlikely person of everybody present, as far as the crowd would have perceived, that Jesus would call to himself and invite him to be a disciple of him. This would have been a stunning moment for the crowd. You see, Levi, who we now know as Matthew, who's the author of Matthew, was a Jewish tax collector in the service of the Roman government. And so he would have been, without doubt, despised and rejected and detested by the Jewish people. They would have hated him with a passion. And there would have been some very clear reasons for that, why they would have hated him, why they would have despised him so much. First and foremostly, Levi would have been a daily reminder to them of Roman domination and Roman oppression. The Jewish people didn't want to be overseen by the Romans, thanks very much. They were opposed by the Romans. They were oppressed by the Romans and dominated by the Romans. And this dude, Levi, A Jewish tax collector who's now working on behalf of Rome would have been a daily reminder to everybody present that those stinking Romans are still overseeing us. They're still dominating us. They're still oppressing. Look, we even have to pay taxes to them. To the Jewish people, Levi would have been a daily reminder of Roman domination and Roman oppression. Additionally, Levi, as with all other tax collectors, was an absolute crook. See, tax collectors were corrupt thieves of the day. 
they basically worked in line with the Romans to really just basically screw over the Jewish people. It's what they wanted to do. And so when they charged for things, we're not looking at income tax here. We're looking at basically GST. So you bought some goods or you, you established some goods. So if you were a fisherman, you'd go fishing, you'd bring the fish in. It'd be like, oh, this is very good. Yeah, thank you for that. Right, you can owe us some money on that one and on that one. And what the tax collectors would do is they would not only gather enough money that they were going to pass on to the Romans, they gathered more money for themselves, which is why they were rich. They were greedy, and everybody had to pay them. It was the law of the land, and so whatever they said you had to pay, you had to pay. So the Jewish people hated this, because they were aware you, who were my countrymen, now work for the Romans, and you're a crook. And so I go past your house, it's the biggest one in all of Capernaum, And you're just rich and you're rich and well off because I'm paying you over the price all the time. Everybody knew them as crooks. But more even than that, Levi as a tax collector would have been then a religious and political traitor to the Jewish people. I mean, think about it. He's even called Levi. Most likely called Levi because he would have been a Levite. He was a Jew. He should have been given himself as a Levite to serving God in the temple, giving his whole life away to serve Jesus. But instead, he's been a traitor to his own people. He now got employed by the Romans, and he's basically screwing over his own people by gathering all the money for them. He's ditched his religion, religious affiliation to the Jews. He's now, as far as he's concerned, just working for the Roman people. He is a religious and political traitor. It's so hard for us to grasp what's going on here, but but it's similar to this. If we were in World War II, it would be like an English guy or a Polish guy or a French guy selling all his knowledge and all all his understanding to the Nazi people and to help them overthrow your nation. That's what it's like. It's like a collaborator from a country trying to help somebody else invade you. So, Levi was not liked. He was not liked at all. A constant reminder of Roman domination and oppression, a constant reminder of what it was like to be on the end of a crook, a constant reminder of a religious and political traitor. See, tax collectors then were excommunicated from the synagogue. They were not allowed to spend time with God's people. They had become, in effect, unclean. They were excommunicated from God's people. Tax collectors likewise would have been a total disgrace to their families. Their own families would have wept over them. You were just such a good guy growing up. What happened to you? When did you become a traitor to your own people? And tax collectors then were openly despised and detested by the Jews. And so, all that to say, no one in the crowd at this moment would have seen this moment coming. This was the most unlikely person for Jesus to say, Hey you, come and follow me. Donald English, in his commentary, says it this way. He says, Levi sat near the lake at a table. Around him were piles of money and account books and fish, but few friends. Whatever then did Jesus think he was doing, saying to Levi, follow me. For this was a stunning moment. So it was. Jesus was now adding a tax collector to the fisherman that he had already called as his disciples, and Levi was surely the most unlikely out of them all. Now, listen, we don't know exactly what happens here, but just think with me for a moment, ponder with me in this moment. What must the four disciples have been thinking in this moment? See, here's the thing. Levi is a tax collector. Levi is not just a tax collector, though. Levi is a tax collector that is set up by the sea. Why would you do that? Because you're a tax collector for fishermen. What do the other guys do for a living? They're fishermen. Exactly. Do you think then, you know, Peter and Andrew and James and John might have come across Levi before? (laughs) Yes, every day of their working lives. They would have hated his guts. Do you think, I cannot believe it. Surely not this jerk. What on earth is going on? This is a guy who rips me off every day of my life. What about, what are the other crowd? Like anybody. 
And the reason why I wonder why they, whether they were kicking off at this point is because Peter was one of them. <laughs> and when you examine Peter, he's always kicking off. He's like, I cannot believe it. This is just ridiculous. I don't want to come anymore. That's probably what was happening. We don't know it. But I bet you when we get there and ask him, that's what was happening. You know, I'm putting it out there that I'm pretty sure knowing these guys a little bit as you tore through them in the Gospels, they were probably in this moment really, really struggling with the Saviour. They would have been stunned. What do you mean? I mean, I, four's a good number, Jesus. Why don't we just go four of us? We don't need five. We don't need famous five. There's a book about that. It's horrible. Just let's be a four. They must have been spitting chips at this moment, wondering what Jesus is doing. Well, I don't know for sure what they were exactly thinking. But I do know for sure that news of this would have quickly traveled far and wide. Everybody would have been heard. Have you heard about the new disciple? Have you heard about the new guy that's following Jesus? You never guess who it is. Who is it? Levi. No. You know, everybody would have been like, you're joking. You'd surely be the last people that, that Jesus would call to himself. Well, this was indeed an unexpected moment. And it just continues to help us see the unexpected nature of the day and the unexpected nature of Jesus' ministry. And yet something more then comes. The day hasn't finished. Jesus hasn't finished his unexpected ministry on this day. Read with me then verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, my Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. See, here's what's happening here. And it's helped by the other Gospels as you read about this account as well. What's happening here is one mother of a dinner party. That's what's happening here. Jesus has gone for the morning with the crowds, teaching the crowds, calling Levi to himself. In the evening then, it would appear that Levi, in gratitude to Jesus, in joy in Jesus, is holding a dinner party in Jesus' honor. And he's going to invite all his mates. Well, he hasn't got many mates, but he's got a few mates. And his mates are all tax collectors, harlots, prostitutes, sinners. He knows all the bad people in the area. And they're all gathering into Levi's house to spend time with Jesus, the Holy One of Israel. What is happening here is one mother of a dinner party. Levi's house is packed to the rafters. Luke describes this scene as the great banquet. Everybody is crammed into this house. And yet not everybody that you would imagine really being there with the Holy One of Israel. So who's at this dinner party? Well, the star of the show is Jesus. He's the one who it's being held in honor of. He's the one that Levi wants everybody to meet. Levi is amazed with Jesus. He can't believe that Jesus has called his name. He wants everybody else, all of his friends, to encounter Jesus. And so Jesus takes center place at the table, reclining at table. Well, who's around him? Well, Well, Levi's there. This guy who's had his life radically transformed by Jesus earlier in the day. And then around Levi, who Jesus is all hanging with and eating with, are all Levi's friends. More tax collectors that everybody hates. Prostitutes that people would look down on. Harlots. Sinners. This house is packed full of the rafters with potentially the last people that you would imagine Jesus eating a meal with. But he's there. And what a thrill this moment was for everybody in the room. Because as Jesus is there with these tax collectors and with these sinners and with these prostitutes, it would appear potentially that he's sharing the gospel with them afresh. He's sharing the joys of the kingdom of God with them afresh. And we read then that many followed him. Many people in this moment, Jesus is calling their name and life conversions are taking place in this room. In this most unlikely of parties with the most unlikely of people, people are going through life conversions in this moment. Everybody would have been totally thrilled about what was taking place. And as we look on at this as Christians, surely we should be thrilled as well, don't you think? These guys were unlikely candidates for salvation. And yet Jesus is there with them, loving them and caring for them and reaching out to them in truth and grace. He's not standing over at the side going, Oh, um, I'm very holy, so 
Would you like to come to Alpha? You know, he's not doing that. He's in there. He's sitting with them. He's enjoying with them. He's like, quick, tell me about yourself. He's not sinning like they're doing. He's not a sinner like they are, but he's with them because he loves them. Ultimately, they're the people he came for. He came to seek and save the lost, and so he reclines at table with them because he loves them. He wants to save them. He wants to be with them. Even to the naked eye, I think you can't help but be thrilled by what is taking place here. And yet, listen, it's when you take a second look, a deeper look at what is really taking place here, that I think you leave this scene not only thrilled, but all the more stunned by what is taking place. And here's why. See, tax collectors weren't just excommunicated from the synagogue. They were that, but they weren't just that. Tax tax collectors weren't just likewise a total disgrace to their families. They were that, but not just that. Now, in addition to both of those things, tax collectors were also considered unclean. To eat with them was to show fellowship to them. And so to recline at table with tax collectors was to, in effect, become unclean like them. It was to be defiled like them. To the Jewish people, you you didn't spend time with unclean people. You didn't sit in fellowship and have meals with unclean people. And yet the tax collectors are registered and known as unclean people. Just like the leper that we read about in chapter 1. The leper is unclean and everybody knows it because of his skin and because he would have to cover his mouth and shout, unclean, unclean. But the tax collectors to the Jewish people were exactly the same, but arguably worse because the leper hadn't chosen to be this way. He just got sick. But the tax collector had chosen to be this way. They had, in treachery, turned from their own people. They had decided to rip off their own people. They had deliberately made themselves unclean because they wanted something different for their lives. To the Jewish people, they were unclean people. And it's when you see that and you peer in then through the window again that you realize this isn't just thrilling. This is totally stunning. See, look at the scene again. Jesus is there reclining at Table with who? With unclean people everywhere. Unclean people leaning on him. Unclean people putting their hand on his shoulder. The Holy One of Israel, the true Holy One who is set apart from all sin, is reclining at the table with unclean people everywhere. And he's eating with them and he's loving them. And he's doing it very deliberately because he wants to identify with them. See, if we've been paying attention, then we will discover that that has been a theme already running through the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is very specifically and deliberately identifying with sinners. We see it then in the baptism of Jesus in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Jesus sets his feet into the sin-stained waters of the River Jordan. He's the only one that doesn't need to because he's the Holy One of Israel. He is without sin. And yet he sets his feet into the River Jordan, the sin-stained river, to identify with the people, to help them see, I've come for you. You're the people I've come for, the sick, the needy, the sinful. He does the same thing in chapter 1, verse 40 through 45, when he cleanses the leper. You can't touch somebody who is unclean. And Jesus goes right up to him and he, and he touches him. He wants to identify with him. I've come for you. You're unclean. But come, I've come for you. And now he does it right here again in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, as he dines with the unclean identifying for everybody to see these are the people I've come for. They're unclean. I know. 
That's why I'm here for them. I'm identifying with them. Well, the scribes, which shouldn't surprise us at all, are incredulous about what is taking place here. You can imagine them gathering round the windows. They may have washed their white togas by now, having suffered a bit of a toga disaster the day before when mud was coming from the ceiling. But now they are peering through the windows because everybody is sort of gathering around Levi's house. There's lots of action going on in there. Hang on a minute, who's that in the middle? Oh my goodness, it's Jesus! Jesus is with all these unclean people. Read verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See how immediately they are incredulous about the scene. How dare he do this? He's a rabbi. He's claiming to be God. He, he, he's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. What is he doing identifying with these unclean people, these defiled people? This is appalling. So you'll notice very quickly then in the Gospel of Mark that the opposition towards Jesus very quickly escalates. In chapter 2, verse 6, we see them questioning Jesus in their hearts. He's clearly claiming to be God, so they're questioning him in their hearts. Now in chapter 2, verse 16, we see the scribes saying out loud to his disciples, in effect, what is he doing? How dare he do this? And in chapter 3, verse 6, we'll read these words. Just a few verses away from us, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That is a quick escalation. But they are going to escalate it because they want to destroy Jesus. How dare he do this? How dare he claim to be God? How, how dare he eat with unclean people? How dare he touch the leper? How dare he do these things? See, all the Pharisees and the scribes saw in this moment was scandal. All they saw was scandal. How dare he do these things? And yet I believe Mark writes this for us here, breathed out by Jesus himself, because we are to see not scandal, but scandalous grace. Because that's what this is a picture of. Jesus Christ is in a room with unclean people. Why? Because they're the people he came for. He came for the tax collectors. He came for the unclean. He came for the prostitutes. He came for the harlots. He came for sinners. That's exactly what he has come to do. He's come for the sick. He's come for those that need him. He's come for the unclean. I mean, what type of doctor spends all his time with healthy people? The healthy people don't need the doctor. Now, the doctor spends all of his time with those that are sick. And so Jesus, time and time again, is identifying with the sick. He's identifying with the needy. He's identifying with the unclean to help us see and help them see you're exactly who I've come for. I've come to save you. I've come to redeem you. I've come to wash you clean. It's not a picture of scandal. It's a picture of scandalous grace. So Jesus seeks to explain that to them. Verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, i.e. their complaint, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now please don't misunderstand what's going on here. Jesus is not suggesting, and I think we can make this mistake, Jesus is not suggesting here or implying here that long term there are two groups of people. You know, some people are sick, some people are defined facts. That's not what he's trying to say here. When he talks in this reference about the well and the righteous, it's an ironic reference very specifically to the scribes and the Pharisees who are blind and self-righteous and totally unaware of their need for the Saviour. It's very specific to them. It's an ironic way of seeking to help them realize, what are you doing? 
He's even now seeking to reach out to them and warn them and address them as to what they're doing. Here's what he is trying to help us see, though. It's what he is trying to help us see all the way down through history. Here's what is loud and clear in verse 17. It's this. Jesus has come to save sinners. That's why I came. I came to save sinners. I came to call sinners to myself. I came for the sick. I came for the needy. I came to call sinners to myself, to turn their life upside down. And so why is Jesus with the sinners? Why is Jesus with the sick? Because they're the very people he came for. And so what we have here is not a picture of scandal, like the Pharisees and scribes thought. What we have here is a glorious picture of scandalous grace. It's incredible, isn't it? The last people that he should have been with, the tax collectors. He's sitting with them. So, how are you going? He's with the lost. He's with the people that need him. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there are some amongst Capernaum that know that. So he's with them. Opening their eyes to the glories of Calvary. And many, it says, followed him. Now the thing that I love about this text is not only does it give us a picture of scandalous grace, I think moreover than that, if you pay careful attention to it, you realize I'm in the picture too. And actually, so are you. Let's look number two then at grace applied. See, there's no doubt in my mind that the main character in this story is Jesus. He's the one around which it is all about. And yet in back up to him then we have Levi and Levi's friends, many of whom are called on this day, many of whom are giving themselves to following Jesus. And yet what's incredible to me is that if you look closely, we're in the story too. Not by name. And names aren't in the story. But by nature, I suggest you we're all in the story because ultimately our stories are exactly the same as this. They may differ in detail, but our faces are behind Levi. Our faces are standing behind him because in God's incredible grace, in just the same way that Jesus stopped and saw and called Levi, You and I are here today because in just the same way he stopped and saw and called Levi, just the same way at the right time he stopped and saw and called you too. And that's the only reason why you're here. The only reason why you're here is we sing songs saying, God, you're you're incredible, I love you. The only reason why you're able to do that is because at just the right time, he stopped. He didn't just see a multitude. He saw you. And he said, you know what? Andrew and Brendan, Coyote, and Fiona and Bianca and Patrick, hey, follow me. And you rose and you followed him and then you find yourself in a service singing, going, you're amazing. The only reason why you're doing that is because at the right time, in his grace, he called your name just like he did with Levi. We would be remiss then to not see that, wouldn't we? This text isn't just here for non-believers. It is here for non-believers. It's here to help non-believers realize Jesus is the Christ and he has come after you. He's come to save sinners. Whatever your story, whatever your history He's come to save you and if you put your faith in him as Lord and Saviour, you will know this salvation in a moment. It's here to teach us that, but there's more than that. For the Christian, as we see our faces behind Levi, it's also a trip down memory lane for us, isn't it? A moment to help us realise my story's like that too. I wasn't a tax collector, but my story's exactly the same. See, for me, I grew up in a Christian home, and I'm very grateful for that. I love my mum and dad dearly. 
And yet in so many ways, growing up, I was what John Bunyan says is Mr. Face in both ways. You know, the church seemed pretty good, but the world seemed pretty good too. And I grew up in a very small town, so it was reasonably sheltered. But when I went to university, I suddenly went to a big town, and I was like, this is amazing. I can eat at McDonald's every day. No one knows. I can go to Burger King in the evenings. You know, I get, there's just so many things that just started to dazzle me. But the truth is, it wasn't just funny things. The world started to dazzle me. So on a Sunday, I'm into the church. In the week, I'm into the world. I was Mr. Facing both ways. And the truth is, I still look back on that season of my life with great regret. There was things that occurred in that season of my life that I will live with for the rest of my life. I wish I didn't have to. So this is not a party political broadcast for all those that are you are younger that think, well, if, it, if Dave did, it'd be okay. I live with scars because of that season in my life. Don't do that. And yet when I was 19 years old, I was at university and I was doing all right, but I met a girl knew her about six weeks, thought, yeah, you're really pretty. We should get married. This is awesome. Do you love Jesus? Well, you know how to spell Jesus. That'll do. And so we got engaged and thought, yeah, this should be, this would probably be, this would probably be pretty good. Left university. The university lecturers weren't happy about that. My parents weren't thrilled about that. Bought a house, couldn't afford. Bought a car, couldn't afford. But my fiancé was working, so I'm like, yeah, I think we'll be all right. And then six weeks before we were due to get married, she called the whole thing off. Left me with a house debt, left me with a car debt, left me with no job. And my world came tumbling down. My pride began to implode my entire life. And I remember just a whole season of my life, for several weeks, just sitting at home in my bedroom, leaning against the wall and just weeping, not knowing what to do next. Not knowing what I want to do in my life. Not knowing whether I had a life, not knowing, not knowing anything. And yet as I look back on that season of my life now, I realized it was in that season, without any doubt, that the gospel became amazing to me in a way that it never had before. The doctrines of grace became amazing to me in a way they never had growing up. I began to be amazed. And so as I'd spend time by myself in the evenings, leaning against my bedroom wall in tears, I remember starting to get my Bible out and starting to read um, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. I'd never read anything before apart from The Adventures of He-Man because it had nice pictures in. I just wasn't into it. But I started to read and these pages started to become fascinating to me. I was amazed that, that God in His grace had died in my place. I was amazed that He would forgive me. Me! who actually needed forgiveness without any shadow of doubt. I was amazed that he would adopt me into his family, a person who was once his enemy, but, but I can now see it at his table. I was amazed that I knew that, that heaven was going to be my home, not because of me, but because of him. And I was amazed, I was absolutely amazed, that it all began because he called my name. And I can't give you a day or a moment when I remember him calling my name. But as I look back on my life, I do realize now, that's exactly what you did. That's why in those evenings when I'm in my bedroom reading, these things are coming alive to me. I'm starting to be hungry for this in a way I never was before. And I realized that was the case. Because you called my name. You called me to yourself. That's why my eyes were coming open to these things. That's why I was affected by these things. Because you, just like you did with Levi, called my name. And my friends, your stories may differ in detail, but in headline, if you are a Christian, they are exactly the same. You're here today as forgiven, justified, adopted, knowing for sure that heaven is your home because of one reason. Because at the right time in your life, he paused in the midst of the multitude and pointed to you and called your name. And you rose and you went forth and you thought, this was amazing. It's only possible because you called your name. What a picture then of scandalous grace, isn't it? And in closing then, I just want to very briefly look at how do we respond then to this picture of grace? Having seen ourselves in the picture, how do we 
respond because I believe this Bible does have claims on our lives. And there are some sincere responses that I think this text gives us. So three things, just very quickly. Number one, how do we respond to this picture of grace? Number one, with humility before God. Humility before Him. J.C. Ryle says it this way. He says, without a divine core, no one can be saved. We are all so sunk in our sin and so wedded to the world that we would never turn to God and seek salvation Unless he first called our names. Listen. God must speak to our hearts by his spirit. Else we would never speak to him. Isn't that wonderful? My friends, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. It's tricky when you're dead to speak to God. But when he speaks to you and calls your name and you come alive, it's then that you go, ha, ha, you start talking. It's the scandal of grace. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says it this way. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? My friends, if we were the ones that started and authored our own faith, that we would without doubt have grounds to boast. Look at what I did. Look at the way I pursued you. And yet the reality that this whole thing started with him calling your name leaves no room for boasting. What did you bring to your salvation? Your sin. What did he bring? Everything. Starting with the moment that he called your name. What then is our response? Well, number one, humility before God. Christians should be the most humble people walking the earth, honestly. We should be walking in on a Sunday, I think, shaking our heads in amazement, going, Lord, why me? Lord, it's something I'll never get. But I thank you for choosing me. Thank you for calling my name. Our whole disposition should be one of, Lord, it is scandalous that I'm here at all. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Lord, why me? Number two, our second response, we respond with assurance from God. See, if we were the ones that started and authored our faith, then we could surely lose it. If we started it, it would mean to go then that we could surely lose it. But the truth of this scripture is that we weren't the one that started it. Because on page one of your salvation story, it doesn't read, I put my faith in Jesus. I accepted Jesus into my heart. It does not read that. Page one of your salvation story reads, Jesus called my name. That's page one of our story. It's Jesus. It's his work. It's his work of divine grace. Just like it was with Levi, so it is with us. Just like it was with Peter and James and Andrew and John. And the list goes on. It's Jesus calling their names. Then they respond and put their faith in him. But the first page is Jesus called my name. Well, the knock-on effect of that then is because we weren't the ones that started our stories, we can surely not be the ones then that will finish it or indeed lose it. We're saints. We've been declared forgiven, declared justified, and that's why Paul says to the Philippians, I am sure of this. I'm totally sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Why is he saying that? Why can he say it so emphatically that he's so sure of it? He's sure of it because you're saints. Why are you saints? You're saints because he called your name. 
The reason why you're here today responding in faith towards Jesus is because he called your name. And so I'm sure of this, that he who started this in your life will carry it on to completion. He'll take it all to the end. When you see your picture in this story, it should bring about a humility before God and an insurance before God, from God, but also it should bring about gratitude towards God. Gratitude. Joe Packer then to finish. He says, To know that from eternity past, my maker, for seeing my sin, for loved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary, to know that the divine Son was appointed from eternity to be my Savior, and that in love He became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me and will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord, who loved me and gave himself up for me, and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers, has by his Spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself, and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. This is knowledge that brings overwhelming gratitude and joy. Ha! <laughs> Should this not be the case, not only for Dr. Packer, but for every Christian on the planet? Because if we really believe that I am here today because my maker, foreseeing my sin, foreloved me and resolved to save me, even though that would mean he would die in my place, if we realize that the only reason I am here is because in my sin, as I had no interest in him, he called my name, and he will keep me until the end. We should be not only the humblest people alive, we should be the happiest people alive. It doesn't mean our life is one big bucket of greatness all the way through. Read your Bibles. Suffering takes place. But underneath the suffering, we should realize all suffering is only temporary. One day I will see his face and I will want for nothing else. And because of that, I'm the happiest person alive. Because he called my name. My friends, this knowledge should not only fuel gratitude and joy for Dr. Packer, it should fuel gratitude and joy for every one of us in this room. Because he called your name. That's why you're here. So with humility and assurance and gratitude then be our themes. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful picture of your scandalous grace this is. Lord, as we gather around this text, we cannot help but have the refrain in our minds playing before us, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. I was blind. But now I see. Lord, would we be freshly amazed by your grace today? Freshly amazed at who you are in your glory as you identify with the unclean to come and seek and save us. Lord, freshly amazed as we see our own pictures, our own faces in the crowd. Freshly amazed as we realized you called our names too. Thank you, Lord.